Something happened between the death of Jesus and the explosion of Christianity. How do you get 11 men to die a martyr's death for a dead man? How do you get a persecutor of Christians to become the central proclaimer of Christ? The only answer? A resurrection. Dale Partridge. Welcome to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and this episode serves as a little late Easter edition. So today's misconception is, the resurrection of Jesus is a myth. Let me begin with two requests followed by asking a few questions. These two requests and the questions that follow are both for the Christian listener and the non-Christian listener. So, request number one, please listen until the end. I designed these episodes kind of like an essay where you have your intro and then your thesis statement at the beginning, then the body that explains and argues for the reliability of that thesis statement, and then I offer a conclusion followed by some encouragement. Sound good? All right. Request number two, Now, this is going to sound harsh, but I think it's very important to consider because both Christians and non-Christians are guilty of doing this. And the request is, do not be intellectually lazy. We can be intellectually ignorant, meaning we can say, actually, I really don't know. I haven't looked into that. We can definitely do that, but don't intentionally be intellectually lazy, meaning don't be okay with saying, nah, I'm good. I don't want to know. What I mean by that is take the time to listen, read, research, and ask a ton of questions when presented with a very bold claim, especially if that claim is as historically monumental as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those are my two requests. Now here are my few opening questions for everyone who is listening to this to genuinely consider and ponder the answers to. So here we go. Do you believe Jesus physically resurrected from the dead? I was raised Catholic, yet I never stopped to consider this claim. Do I actually believe Jesus bodily rose from the dead after being savagely murdered? If you do believe he bodily rose, how do you know? How can you be so sure of such a miraculous event that happened 2,000 years ago? If you don't believe he rose... How can you be so sure he didn't? If you were presented with historical evidence for the resurrection, would you accept it? Or will you hold an internal bias towards not believing? Do you dismiss even considering the resurrection because you believe miracles simply don't and can't happen? And lastly, if you do believe Jesus resurrected, have you considered what that means? Does your life reflect the reality of that historical fact? My goal with today's episode is to present that evidence as concisely yet thoroughly as possible. Concise enough to remember and repeat it to another person who is curious and skeptical or skeptical, and thorough enough to assure you that this is no mere myth or religious hoax. So let's begin. I'm going to be following an outline 
Um, and this outline was previously used by Pastor Mike Winger in, in his video describing the evidence for the resurrection, which I think is incredibly helpful in remembering the evidence. So I'll link that, that his video in the description. The outline follows the acronym ALIVE, A-L-I-V-E. A for a death by crucifixion. L for ladies visit the empty tomb. I for independent appearances after death. V for violence endured by the disciples. And then E, enemies of Christ converted. So let's start off with a death by crucifixion. At this point, you may say, wait, Chris, I thought this was evidence for the resurrection. Why spend time on Jesus's death on the cross? Well, because if you don't have a death, a confirmed murder on the cross, you don't have a resurrection. If we don't have a historically confirmed death, we can't possibly have a historically confirmed resurrection. In fact, it's necessary to begin with the crucifixion because many Muslims don't believe Jesus died on the cross, but that he died a natural death. Some hold to the position that God would never allow his prophet to be numbered among such, such vile criminals crucified. Other traditions claim that Judas was the one who died on the cross, and others claim that it was simply a phantom like Jesus, merely spiritual in appearance. Another theory, probably one of the most known, is what's called the, th the swoon theory. The swoon theory claims that Jesus merely swooned or fainted while on the cross, and then in the coolness of the tomb, he woke up and was taken by his followers, which would inevitably explain the empty tomb. But that would imply that he survived the crucifixion, which according to the majority of credible New Testament scholars is highly unlikely, foolish even. Why? Because no one could survive a Roman crucifixion. So this is where we'll take some time to reflect on what a first century Roman execution by crucifixion looked like, specifically with the execution of Jesus. To do this, I'm going to read portions out of Lee Strobel's small book called The Case for Easter, where he has a section dedicated to his sit-down conversation with Dr. Alexander Metherell, who with his scientific and medical credentials was more than qualified to explain what happened at Calvary. He begins with the night before the cross. While Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion, the text says that he was sweating drops of blood. Luke 22 verse 44 says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. According to Dr. Metherell, this is a rare medical condition called hematohydrosis, it's not very common, but is associated with a high degree of psychological stress. What happens is that severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries and the sweat glands. As a result, there's a small amount of bleeding into these glands, and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, it's just a very small amount. Enough to notice. Dr. Metherell continues by saying, what this did was set up the skin to be extremely fragile so that when Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldiers the next day, his skin would be very, very sensitive. It is absolutely clear that Jesus not only spiritually felt the anguish of what the next day would bring, but also physically. Now we turn to the day of the crucifixion, starting with the flogging. 
Jesus wasn't whipped. He was flogged. And this is how it happened. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. At the end of the whip would be pieces of sharp bone and glass as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, down the buttocks, and then the, and then the back of the legs. These lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscle and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A 3rd century historian by the name of Eusebius described the flogging by saying, The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. This tremendous pain would cause any victim to go into hypovolemic shock, causing fainting and severe thirst. And we see that in the gospel accounts where Jesus collapses on the way to the cross and says that he is thirsty while on it. Now, while on the cross, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point and were driven through the wrist, where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going out to the hand, and it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded into it. A similar pain would be felt as the nail is driven into his feet, crushing the nerves, and then he would be hoisted up in a vertical position. As he is in a vertical position on the cross, both shoulders would have been dislocated immediately and stretched to about six inches further than normal. So the question may be asked, if a person has not died at this point of the process, what would be the final blow? Ultimately, death by crucifixion was an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. Here's how. So while on the cross, the diaphragm, which is the muscle responsible for inhaling and exhaling, would be fixed in an inhaled position, making the only outlet to breathe to push up on his feet, tearing through the foot, scraping his bloody back on the coarse wood of the cross, only to have to repeat the same gruesome process over and over again to stay alive. As breathing slows down, he goes into what's called respiratory acidosis, slowing down the heart. This irregular heartbeat would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart called, the per called pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called the pleural effusion. This is significant because when the Roman soldier came around and being fairly certain that Jesus is dead, confirmed by thrusting a spear into his side. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart, so when the spear was pulled out, some fluid came out. This would have the appearance of a clear, fluid-like water followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitness John described in his gospel. If they wanted to speed up the process, they would either take a spear to the heart, as I just described, or break the legs so that they couldn't push up to breathe. So, take a moment to consider what Dr. Alexander Metherell described to investigative journalist Lee Strobel that day. If you believe Jesus merely swooned or passed out on the cross, then you are suggesting that after a severe flogging, which is often referred to as a half-death, 
people often died simply from this punishment. So you have your severe flogging, you have six hours of crucifixion, where we have serious blood loss and dehydration, and a spear to his side. You, are you saying that Jesus could unwrap his burial cloths, fight off the professional killers who put him in that position in the first place, and make a strong, convincing appearance to his disciples? That seems much more of a miracle than the resurrection itself, if you ask me. Sure, the Roman guards were not doctors to medically confirm Jesus' death, but they were the most elite professional killers and trained executioners and would have received severe penalties themselves if Jesus was not dead. So, I know that was a lot for the first point, but I spent the most time with this one because it solidifies that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed executed and confirmed dead by the Romans. So, now that we have the evidence in place for a dead Jewish rabbi, we move on to the next piece of evidence. Lady, the ladies visit the empty tomb. Now here you may ask, how could women visiting the empty tomb be considered evidence? Well, because we have to consider the context in which this discovery was made. You see, all four of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record a number of women visiting the empty tomb. Now, I know the number of women who visited the tomb varies depending on which gospel you read, but I'll get to that in a second. But in the context of a patriarchal first century Palestine, women's low social status meant that their testimony was not admissible evidence in court. Women were just not seen as reliable witnesses. So why would the discovery of the greatest event in history be put on the, on the shoulders of those whose voices held little to no weight in society? How then could their eyewitness account be reliable and why is that fact a crucial piece of evidence? Well, because of something called the principle of embarrassment. According to this principle, events or sayings in the life of Jesus, or any life for that matter, which would be embarrassing or counterproductive for the early Christian community, are more likely to be historical than they would otherwise have been. So, simply put, if an eyewitness account contains embarrassing details, it is more likely to be true than false. How embarrassing would it be for women, those who had little to no power behind their testimony in court, to be the ones to share the news that Jesus' tomb was empty while the male apostles were afraid and hiding? Imagine if you were Matthew. If you, imagine if you were the gospel writer Matthew. Wouldn't you want to be like, mm, that wasn't our greatest moment. I think we'll just leave that part out. But they didn't. And they couldn't, because they were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the true events of the day. Embarrassing details and eyewitness accounts are often true. Now, some people may claim, well, Chris, what if they just arrived at the wrong tomb, saw that it was empty, and just relayed what they saw? Well, if they were proclaiming that Jesus was not in the tomb and had risen, couldn't the Jewish leaders and Roman guards simply point them to the correct tomb and say, nope? Here he is. That would be the end of the Christian movement before it had even started. But if you insist that as a possibility, it's a good thing we know exactly what tomb Jesus was buried in. In Matthew 27, 
verse 57, we are introduced to a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a part of the Jewish council. He requests Jesus' body from Pontius Pilate to prepare a proper burial in his own designated tomb. Any wealthy person at this time usually had a designated burial place for themselves. So here we have an assumption that the woman went that the women went to the wrong tomb, yet we have a prominent figure mentioned by name who uses his own tomb for the burial of Jesus. A simple search would prove the eyewitness account because we have a name to corroborate. It'd be like saying, hey, my grandfather is buried next to John F. Kennedy. Yet we could very easily prove that right or wrong by simply going to where JFK is buried. So to assume that the woman went to the wrong tomb is just lazy skepticism. Now, another quick note before we move on to the next point. We have to address the differences in all four of the gospel accounts. Atheist or agnostic Dr. Bart Ehrman claims that the Gospels are not historically reliable because of their inconsistencies recording the empty tomb narrative. So in his debate with Christian philosopher William Lane Craig on the historical evidence for the resurrection, he argues this. Who went to the tomb on the, on the third day? Was it Mary alone or was it Mary with other women? It depends which Gospel you read. If it was Mary with other women, how many other women were there? Which ones were they, and what were their names? It depends which gospel you read. Was the stone rolled away before they got there or not? What did they see in the tomb? Did they see a man? Did they see two men? Or did they see an angel? It depends which gospel you read. If you read all four accounts on the resurrection in the gospels, notice their differences, and are tempted to share Bart Ehrman's skepticism, here's something to remember. Each recorded account may have details that seem inconsistent, but you know what is the same across all four Gospels? The tomb being empty and women being the first to witness it. If the accounts were completely identical, that actually would raise more red flags than these minor differences. So that's our second piece of evidence. Now we move right along to the third. independent appearances after death. So after Jesus rose from the dead, there were multiple people, both in a group and individually, that saw him alive and well. The most common objection to the eyewitness accounts are that the people who saw him after his death merely hallucinated. Yet here are a few pieces of evidence that refute that claim. The first one is hallucinations are not physical. You can't touch them, examine them, or eat with them as the disciples did with Jesus. Another thing is that hallucinations don't happen in groups. For example, if you take 500 people, have them all take LSD at the same time, no two people, let alone all 500, will have the exact same hallucination. And then, lastly, if they hallucinated seeing Jesus, Jesus would have physically still been in the tomb. 
All they needed to do was revisit the tomb, reveal that Jesus was still in there, and any news of a resurrected Jesus would have dissipated immediately. Now here's the main piece of evidence for this point. The earliest testimony we have of the resurrection is in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, which read as follows. For I, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, there are several details to note from this passage, but I want to hone in on verses 3 through 6 specifically, because this serves as the earliest testimony we have on the resurrection. The first detail to note is that verses 3 through 6 is considered to be a very early Christian creed, or an earlier tradition, as Paul describes it by saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This creed Many scholars date back into the 30s AD, soon after Jesus' death, long before the Gospels were written. But yet someone may ask, well, how do we know Paul received this as a tradition? Is there evidence from Scripture that tells us who he met with to receive and discuss these things? Yes, yes we do. In Galatians 1.18, Paul describes how after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James to discuss the gospel, and I think it's safe to assume that he received this early creed from them at that time. Galatians 1.18-19 read, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. The fact that Peter and James are mentioned specifically in the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 indicates Paul most likely received it from them. So how does this serve as evidence for the resurrection? Well, because Paul presents himself as both an eyewitness to the risen Lord Jesus and a witness to the eyewitnesses. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus when the risen Lord Jesus confronts him about persecuting him. Paul is blinded and later saved, so after time had passed, he meets with arguably the two closest people to Jesus during his life and ministry, Peter and James, to confirm all that has happened. This confirmation is seen in the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 6 when Paul says, I delivered to you as of, as of first importance what I also received. This is considered to be the earliest eyewitness testimony and, in, and an incredibly reliable one because of how close it was developed to the actual resurrection, probably within a few days. Now, to the fourth piece of evidence, the violence endured by the disciples. Now, we can assume that people don't endure pain and suffering for an extended amount of time for just anything. It has to be something truly from the depths of their existence to persevere even in the midst of dire circumstances. Even when you see those movies that have scenes of blackmail or 
someone holding another person hostage, ultimately, if they're hiding something, they always break. They always break at some point and end up spilling the news or the secret. So if the disciples did lie about encountering a resurrected Jesus, why would they endure severe suffering for something they knew was a lie? People die for lies all the time, but they don't die for something they know is a lie. Could they have possibly been influenced by some form of incentive? Money? Power? Women? Could it be money? Well, no, actually, a life dedicated to Jesus is probably going to lead to a nomadic lifestyle for a while for these guys. Was it power? Nope, not that either, because if, if you keep preaching Jesus as they did, they were eventually executed, and you will probably experience some type of persecution. Was it women? Nope, not that either. Actually, there are pretty strict guidelines on stuff like that. So the disciples had not a single worldly incentive to hold on to a lie. Because of some passages in the Bible, Jewish historian Josephus and the early church fathers, here's what happened to each of the disciples. Matthew was killed by sword for preaching in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the city in Alexandria. Luke was hung to death on an olive tree in Greece. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Philip was hung in Phrygia. Bartholomew was skinned alive. Andrew was left on a cross and left to die of exposure. Jude was shot to death by arrows. Thomas was run through by a lance in East India. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death in Thessalonica. Paul was beheaded in Rome and Peter was crucified upside down. Yet they never denied the resurrection. If the body was stolen, once the threats of death began circulating, they could have easily produced the body to keep themselves from being killed. But they didn't because they couldn't because Jesus was alive. On another note, our historical records are filled with other messianic movements that predate Jesus, meaning there were other groups that claimed to have found the true Messiah, or they claimed that they were the Messiah themselves, the promised Savior. But all of those movements ended in the same way. Their wannabe Messiah was executed by the Roman government, and then the group disintegrated as they left demoralized and defeated. At that point, they could only begin to search for a new Messiah. So why didn't that happen with Christianity? Its Messiah was also killed by the Romans, and yet the Christian movement continued. Indeed, and not only continued, but also grew and prospered. Such an unexpected historical explosion requires a historical explanation. And there is a historical explanation. Christians became absolutely convinced that their Messiah was not dead, but alive. So, on to our last point of evidence. Enemies of Christ converted. This point will be significantly shorter than the rest, but it doesn't mean it's, any, it's of any less importance. If we weren't aware already, almost two-thirds of the New Testament is written by a man named Paul. So who was Paul? Paul also known as Saul of Tarsus, made it his goal to extinguish any belief in the, risen, in the risen Jesus. 
In Galatians 1.13 we read, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. How could a man who was so determined to destroy Christians become one? I mean, this guy wasn't just some nonchalant, indifferent bystander who was annoyed at Christianity's growth. He was like, I will find you and I will kill you. This drastic change is only possible through an encounter with the resurrected Jewish Messiah. In Galatians 1.11, just before the passage I just read, Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of a man who experienced divine heart surgery. So with all that to say, those are the five historically reliable pieces of evidence for the resurrection. A death by crucifixion, ladies visit the empty tomb, independent appearances, violence endured by the disciples, and enemies of Christ converted. Now, if you've just dismissed everything I've said so far because you hold to the worldview that miracles are impossible, then you are making an even bolder claim that I am and are not considering the broader context. Dr. Michael Kruger, a theologian and professor of, the of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary, wrote in his book, Surviving Religion 101, about how people dismiss miracles happening because they are highly improbable. Therefore, we must choose an alternative explanation. He goes on to say, I quote, The probability of any event cannot be determined only by considering the event itself. The probability of that event depends on the broader context that surrounds that event, end quote. He then uses the example of going to a track meet and knowing the probability of someone breaking a four-minute mile. It would be impossible to know how probable that would be without considering the broader context. If you're at a high school track meet, then the probability of seeing a four-minute mile broken would be low. But if you were at the Olympic trials, then the probability would be much higher. What he means by using this example is that if you believe God doesn't exist, then the probability of this non-existent God intervening miraculously in the world would be highly improbable. But if you do believe God exists, then it would be highly probable for him to do miracles. In fact, it would probably be expected. So in closing, as Michael Kruger writes, in order to claim a miracle as improbable, he would first have to show that the Christian God does not exist, which he cannot. Since he cannot, he has no basis for saying miracles don't happen. Even if you can't believe in the most important miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, wouldn't you want it to be true? Wouldn't you want it to be all true? If you come to believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead, affirming every single word that left his lips, you have infinite hope and reason to pour yourself out for the glory of the one true king that reigns over all. 
The historical facts about the resurrection lead to one inescapable conclusion. Jesus is alive. And everything he said and did during his earthly ministry is true. Confirmed, sealed, indisputable, forever life-changing. That he is indeed the only way to the Father. That he is indeed the truth through which all things come to be. And that he is indeed the life that surpasses all fear of death, disease, and decay. He is both the lion and the lamb. We have been gathered up to the heart of this gentle shepherd, and we can live confident that this world belongs to our sovereign Lord Jesus. It is in this very Savior I encourage you to seek to know with everything you've got, even if it kills you. To delight in Him before dismissing Him. To know Him before knocking Him. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family. Peace.